that you would help us to give our worship to you in such a way that we would hear what you have to say. God, that you would impress upon our hearts, Lord, the the power of your word, the meaning of your word. I pray the Lord for our brother Aaron, that you would give him the words to speak in such a way that it would it would resonate in our hearts that we would understand your word. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given to us of calling us your friend, and we can call you friend as well. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be in your presence to worship you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. It can be found on page 902 in the Bible under your seat. John 15, 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, buddy. Morning. So before Aaron gets started, just wanted to take a, a moment to acknowledge um, the, the week that we've had here in, in the United States, where we've had three separate shootings. Um, one in Gilmore, the other in El Paso, and then late last night in Dayton, uh, in, uh, Dayton Ohio. Just want to take a minute to, to acknowledge just the reality of, of violence in our nation and to spend a, a minute praying for the families of the victims, for those who are, who are injured but still alive, um, as well as just to, to pray for God's justice and for peace. Let's take a minute to do that. Lord, we... Um, we first, we, we want to grieve with these families this morning. Lord, um, violence like this is senseless, um, misdirected, tragic. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us your heart and your sensitivity to what has taken place that we would feel with you that sense of righteous anger, of grief, and a deep sense of loss, not only for the victims, but for the shooters, for those lives that went so radically adrift. Lord, we remember that on the cross you prayed for the forgiveness of your killers. So we beg your forgiveness for the shooters, even as we also ask for justice, Lord. We pray for your comfort for those families that have had to lose somebody, not only suddenly, but lose somebody to an act of aggression, which is a whole other level of trauma. 
I pray for the churches in those cities, for the churches of Gilroy, El Paso, and Dayton, that your people would rise up to love without an agenda, to embody Christ to these families. As we know, Lord, that that you have given an explanation for evil. And you have also given the only viable hope in the face of evil and in the face of, of death, which is the cross and the resurrection, the gospel. We also pray for, for our nation at large, for the rising sense of anxiety about violence, that we, your people, would be given the courage to live well, to live with, with um, self-abandonment to love, and that we would image you to, to a world uh, full, full of fear and confusion. We love you, Lord. Now I just lift up my brother Aaron and just um, say before you how much I appreciate him and, and want to thank you again, Lord, for, for our friendship and for leading Aaron to, to this church. Um, pray that you'd bless his words and bless, up, bless us through, a, through the preaching of, of your scriptures. Amen. Amen. Thank you uh, for, for leading us in that time of prayer in such a tragic and sensitive time in our nation. Uh, Mike, it's very appreciated and just reminds us of the soberness of life and how life is truly a gift. And we're not always promised tomorrow. Today, we're continuing part six of our series, The Gospel in Life. Uh, it's a sermon series that we've taken the time during the summer uh, as a church to explain what the gospel is and how it shapes every avenue of a Christ follower's life. To those of you that are new or uh, have been recently attending our church, we've uh, been addressing topics pertaining to money and finances, work, specifically how what we do uh, matters to God and that God calls us to reflect a life of meaningful work, uh, time and busyness and how we can manage and use our time more effectively as Christ followers. And we've also discussed the topic of aging and death. Uh, Today, I will be addressing uh, the topic of friendship, which is part six of our series, and how the gospel teaches us that we can have friendship with God. Actually, our friendship with God supplies new understanding for how we ought to relate to one another. This central friendship steers the way that we invest in our human friendships. Join me in prayer before we dive into what God has in store for us today and his word. Dear Father, thank you for this church and just for the friends that are present here in this church and those relationships and what they've meant to me at this season of my life. Thank you for your friendship that you have initiated with with me and uh, uh, to all that you have called to yourself, Lord. I ask that you would just uh, fill me with your Holy Spirit today. And uh, you would just give me a spirit of boldness as I proclaim your word and I rest on your word. Um, I, I ask that you would uh, just use the feeble words that I say to edify and feed and nourish your body today. Lord, I recognize that, that I am a, a sinner and uh, how oftentimes I do not practice my, my friendship with you the way that I want to, Lord, but Regardless of uh, my communion with you, when it waxes and wanes, my union with you does not. And I take joy in that. 
I ask, Lord, that you would just uh, help me today as I speak on this topic. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, I ask these things. Amen. As I was preparing to deliver this message to you today, I began to assess the current state of our culture and how living in a digital age has influenced us for the better and for the worse when it comes to the way that we navigate our friendships. I came across a page crafted by The Atlantic known as The Friendship Files, and on this page I found some pretty humorous and helpful stories, uh, such as, he returned his friend's sweatshirt 20 years after he borrowed it. And the friends who have been playing the same game of Dungeons and Dragons for 30 years. As for those of you who might be wondering what is D&D, well, consider yourself blessed and happy people, for ignorance is bliss. (laughs) I know I'm probably going to get some choice words later for what I've said. And I'm going to go ahead and apologize to my D&D loving friends. Also, I saw stories of what to do when your friend moves across the world. However, I also found some stories that really upset my heart, such as what it's like to make a BFF on Bumble. For those of you that may not know what Bumble is, Bumble is essentially a dating app um, comparable to Hinge or Coffee Meets Bagel, but Bumble has a feature not only where you can meet people on the app uh, for dating relationships, but you can also make business connections and business relationships, but also... If you're lonely and want to find a friend, it has a friendship feature on the app as well. These stories speak to the climate of how desperate people are to have community and seek friendships. Notably, it screams the God-given desire for a relationship. As an extrovert in the church, I've reflected this past year of what this topic means for my own life and how thankful I am for the friendships that encourage my daily well-being. Now, I can't speak for my introverted brothers and sisters, But God has wired my temperament in such a way that if I don't see people for six to seven hours, I start to display symptoms of depression, loneliness, depending on my environment, cabin fever, and irritation. And I begin to enter into an existential crisis and question the meaning of life. (laughs) Although this is an aspect of my life that is laughable, I've come to a point where I'm able to feel comfortable with how ridiculous this is. But I've also come to accept an aspect of weakness. And to those of you, this is a side comment, to those of you that know, I work at a coffee shop in the area called Hansa Coffee Roasters, and we have three locations, one in Libertyville, one in Lake Bluff, and one in Vernon Hills. For the past few months, I've been stationed at the Vernon Hills campus, and uh, uh Whenever you're uh, placed on Vernon Hills to work at that location, you don't have other coworkers that you're working with. Uh, so uh, I usually work shifts from 8.30 to 3 or 3 to 9 by myself. And sometimes we don't see people come into the Barbara's Bookstore in the Hawthorne Mall where the store is located. And it gets lonely when I don't see people for two hours and it literally sucks the life out of my soul. And I just want to thank those of you that have come to... Fill life in my soul when it is being sucked out in that bookstore. But as I've mentioned, I've come to accept an aspect of weakness when it comes to my temperament. And if I'm correct in my diagnosis, I would like to believe that we live in a society that elevates autonomy and independence as something that is virtuous. And to admit that you have flaws, are needy or dependent. 
places a stigma of weakness upon your personhood. Or perhaps it makes you seen as a buzzkill or too much for your friends. We can't admit that we're needy. Better not let the people that you kick it with get too close before they realize the mess. We have fear of being ostracized by the ones we love. Or perhaps you're fine with realizing you can't live without people, but your hardest moments are those when you're not distracted by life's next best thing and you fear being alone. I've been there. Real intimacy requires getting close, and vulnerability can be scary. As a Christian, I've found comfort in having a cosmic divine friendship with my best friend, Jesus Christ, and this has shaped the way that I foster and pour into my friends with other people. And for those of you that might be interested, that are more on the introverted temperament scale of things, there's a book, um, I forget the author's name, he's a pastor in California, foreword by Scott McKnight. It's uh, uh, called uh, Speaking to Introverts in the Church uh, and How Living in an Extroverted Culture is a Challenge to Introverts in the Church. And on the cover of the book, it has birds on an electric wire, and those of you might find benefit in that book. Uh, that may have the introverted temperament. Um, so I'm preaching today from John 15, 12 through 17. In this passage, we see that Jesus has called those that believe in his name to be his friends. And our friendship with God, I believe, enables us to forsake friendship with the world and gives us the ability to love our neighbors purposefully. In chapter 15, these sayings of Jesus take place directly after the upper room discourse. In chapter 13, we see Jesus' last moments with his disciples, and he begins to stoop and wash his disciples' feet. At the end of chapter 14, we read in verse 31, Rise, let us go from here. So this discourse in chapter 15 is probably taking place as the disciples are walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his high priestly prayer that we read in chapter 17 before he's arrested and led to his crucifixion. My first point, starting in verses 12 through 13, God's sign of friendship is the act of Jesus' self-sacrifice. Verse 12 through 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus gives the command that we love each other with the same love that he's loved us with. Jesus has said three verses earlier in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Just as the Father delights in Christ, we read at Jesus' baptism, the Father opens up the heavens and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we read this again at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has loved us with the same equivalency of the love that the Father has for him, with the same magnitude of love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that Jesus has displayed for us. This love is divine. God has set his love on display in the cross, and it's on Calvary where the love of God was amplified. God invites us into a friendship with the entire Trinity. In 1 John 3, oh, 1 uh, in verse 3, we read, Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In verse 13, we read, Greater love has no man than this. When we read this verse, we ought to read, This is the definition of love. This is what love looks like. This is where we see the greatest love demonstrated. Jesus calls his disciples to model this cruciform love. And in the same manner, we ought to love the brethren. 
In 1 John 3.16 we read, This is how we know what love is. Looking at the cross, that's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This love is self-sacrificial. God calls his friends to model a love that is cross-shaped. A friend of God has been set apart by the crucifixion, and the entirety of his or her life has been defined by that salvific event. Our motives for showing love toward one another ought to be influenced by what God has done for us. My second point is that God's friends love one another. As we've read in verse 13, greater love is no man than this, for the one lay down his life for his friends. We have to remember that that sentence is tied to verse 12, where Jesus tells us and instructs us to love one another because he has loved us. He's given us a motive and he's given us reason to love people based in his love. Friends of God love what and whom God loves. Real friends get close. They take the risk of vulnerability and real friends get into your business. Real friends love you enough to tell you the truth. In 1 John 3.18, we read, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in the truth. When our words are separated from our actions, there's an incongruency with the way that Jesus says those people would be his friends. The people that are his friends do not display a constant incongruency with their words and their actions. When we read about friendships in the ancient world and in times of antiquity, we know that there's three different kinds of friendships that took place. We read that there's political friendships, and this is why at the crucifixion we read when Pontius Pilate is about to deliver Jesus up to crucifixion. Uh, the Jews began to uh, say to Pilate, if you crucify him, if you do not crucify him, you are no friend of Caesar's. So we see that Pontius Pilate was swayed by the words of the crowd and his friendship with Caesar and his political motivations uh, were, were influencing uh, his discretion of justice. There were also friendships that people would hire other people to have work. And this is why we read in the, in the parable of uh, the man that went and hired uh, the workers for the field, and he agreed to give them the same payment, those that worked 12 hours, those that worked nine hours, and those that worked six, and those that worked three. The ones that worked the longest hours in the day had a charge against the master, and the master said, friend, did you not agree with me for one denarius? So there was a type of friendship that agreed to have particular kinds of pay and work for people. But then there's a mutual kind of friendship that we see that's being modeled in the ancient Near East. And these kind of friendships, whenever possible, would provide ties and connect households to one another. Maybe this is what Paul has in mind when he says in Ephesians 2 that we've become members of God's household because of our friendship with Christ. Friends of God love what and whom God loves. And I'm very thankful that I've seen this love modeled in this church. On Sunday, I had two friends from this church. You might know them. Their names are Frank and Betsy. Yes, I'm talking about you. Frank and Betsy invited me to an event in Gray's Lake 
to go observe a demolition derby. And I can say that, admittedly, there was a part of my southern roots that really liked that. (laughs) Seeing uh, the trailers and seeing the trucks get smashed up. But I felt very honored and very privileged that they wanted to share this extra ticket to the demolition derby with me. And uh, they've invited me into that relationship with them and with their family and to build a friendship with their children. As I got into their car when I was leaving church, Abby looked at me and Abby was so excited for me to go. And uh, she said, I'm really glad that you're uh, going. I'm really glad that my friend is going. And she said, you're my grown-up friend. (laughs) And my initial impulse was, aw. And my other impulse was, interesting. What do you mean, Abby? And she said, all of my adult friends, I call my grown-up friends. And then she began to explain how she had two people in the church that were her favorite grown-up friends. And in the same way, I want my life to model the kind of behavior that Abby gives. That I want to have friends in every generation. I want to continue to have grown-up friends as a 24-year-old. And it's important that we have friends across that generational gap. When I first began to visit this church, I began to wonder why there weren't as many young adults or people in my age group. And at first, that was a hesitation for me joining this church. But it's actually become the greatest gift for the reason why I have joined this church, is that I've been able to pour into friendships across that generational chasm and that divide and be able to access that treasury of benefits that come from being friends with people in every season of life. Verse 14, we read that Jesus says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now it's important that we recognize the exclusive statement Jesus is saying here. If one claims to be a Christian yet lives a lifestyle that is incongruent with how Jesus has said a disciple ought to live, there's perfect reason to question that person's walk with the Lord and their friendship with God. We all fall short, but there's a noteworthy difference when someone is persistently displaying willful disobedience and does not portray evidence of the outward fruit of an inward changed life. Jesus says that the friendship he initiates with us causes us to bear fruit that is consistent with his character and bears the will of his father, as we read in verse 16. One of my favorite pastors and theologians that died in the mid-1500s, his name was Martin Luther, stated about this verse, the absence of love bears testimony against you that your faith is not true and that you have not received this friendship. If you do not love the people that God loves, it's an indicator that something is wrong. James chapter 4 verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world's enmity or opposition with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, friendship with the world here means being conformed to the social imaginaries that are in stark contrast to the message of the kingdom of God. In fact, loving the things of the world is in direct opposition to the will of God. Now, I do not mean resisting friendships with people that are not Christians, but this is what I mean by loving the world. First John two fifteen through 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in it, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, this is the description, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In verse 14, we see that it is not the obedience that is what makes the disciples their friends. They don't have to maintain their friendship with Jesus. This obedience is not what makes them friends. It's what characterizes them as, their friend, as, as friends of God. We do not maintain our union with Christ by following his commandments. That would be called works-based salvation. But rather, we strengthen our fellowship and our communion with Christ by doing what he says. When I read this verse, it brings an element of conviction to my life. Do I invest in my friendship with Jesus? Like any friendship, our relationship with God must be one that we habitually set apart and that we make time for and value. We can take comfort in knowing that when we are not taking time to commune with our Savior, he remains faithful when we are faithless, and he's a faithful friend. Our union with Christ does not wax and wane, although our communion with him might wax and wane. Verse 15, we read, I no longer call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. Perhaps a word needs to be said about analogies when we read analogies in Scripture, in particular driving analogies. In what sense is this friendship tied to? When he says no longer servants, this does not mean in every respect. We still call him Lord, and there still is a level of servant-master relationship. We read in parables before that Jesus has said, well done, good and faithful servant to us to those that yield their lives to him. And then we also read in Galatians, you're no longer slave nor free male nor free female, but you're sons. So scripture tells us that we are servants, that we are friends, and that we are sons in particular respects. What do we make of Jesus calling us friends in this passage, but him calling us servants in the rest of scripture? We need to remember that friendship is connected here to knowledge. My fourth point is God intimately shares the secrets of his heart to his friends. God has shared his knowledge with us, and that is the token of friendship that he gives us. Or in the words of uh, another reformer by the name of John Calvin, the knowledge that's shared by Jesus in this passage is the pledge of love that he has for us. What once was hidden is now revealed. Jesus reveals knowledge of God to his friends. Knowing God's plan, God's heart, God's will, God's purpose, and God's intentions is demonstrative of friendship. In this sense, Jesus says friendship is tied to knowledge of God. We are loved and we love because we know. Jesus has poured forth the mysteries of his Father. Now I want to share a quote by a guy named St. Ambrose. I'm going to nerd out a little bit here if you give me permission to. You guys give me permission to nerd out for a second. Okay, so in the fourth century, there was this um, man uh, named Ambrose, and he was a bishop of Milan in Italy. And uh, this man uh, became the mentor of a very influential theologian in uh, church history, and his name was St. Augustine. And Augustine is debatably um, the greatest influential, he's the most influential theologian in the Christian West outside of Paul, that some people would say. And Ambrose formed a friendship with Augustine and formed a friendship with his mother, Monica. And Monica was grieved over the behavior and the lifestyle that her son had. And she was praying for her son and she became a congregant 
in Ambrose's church. And she began to share the life of her son to Ambrose. And uh, she began to find out upon further probing Ambrose and Ambrose's particular history is that Ambrose used to be a part of the same sect that did not believe that Jesus had a physical body and he changed his mind when God continued to work on his heart and show him the message of scripture and show that Jesus did truly come and live in the flesh. There was an ancient heresy that believed that Jesus wasn't actually a man, but that he was kind of like a goat and he kind of had the appearance of a man and had the appearance of flesh. And when Monica found that out, she clung to Ambrose and Ambrose said, woman, keep praying. God will not let these tears come to waste. And Ambrose was right. And Ambrose began to be Augustine's instructor. But this is what Ambrose says about this passage in the fourth century. He gave the form of friendship that we should follow, that we do the will of our friend, that we reveal our secrets to our friend whatever we have in our heart and that we should not be unaware of our friend's own secrets. Let us reveal ourselves to him and let him open his heart to us for a friend hides nothing. If he is a true friend, he pours forth his soul just as the Lord Jesus poured forth the mysteries of his father. Here we see that Jesus calls us no longer servants because there's an injection and there's a turn in salvation history at this moment. Jesus' disciples in the new covenant are given more privilege to access the mind of God more than the saints were in the Old Testament. In Galatians 4, 8 through 9, we read, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature that were not God's. But now that you've come to know, to know God, or rather are known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Jesus calls his disciples friends rather than servants because of their shared commitments and purposes. We once did not know him, but now we have known him and we're known by him. In James 2.23, we read, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Abraham's faith and belief in God is what made him a friend of God. In Exodus 33, 11, we read, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. Jesus' disciples are not in the dark about who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't give them blind obedience. But God reveals his knowledge to them. In times past, God's covenant people were not informed of God's saving plan in the full measure that we're now given in Jesus. We're more privileged and more informed than any other believers who became before. And if second Corinthians three said that that glory was fading away, that Moses had to put a veil over his face, how much greater is the glory now that we've been given in the new covenant that we have been called friends of God. The distinction Jesus draws here between a servant and a friend is not just one between obeying and disobeying, but between understanding and not understanding. What do we do with this knowledge, though? What does God call you to do with what you know? I truly believe God doesn't teach you something unless... God doesn't teach you something new unless he expects you to share it with other people. Knowing our status and our relationship with God enables us to love other people. Knowing what kind of friendship we've been given allows us to love others deeper. When Jesus says, I have made everything known from my father to you, 
We read a chapter before that Jesus said there were things he wants to share with us that we, he can't because we're not able to bear it yet. I think the everything that Jesus has in mind here is everything that pertains to our salvation, the knowledge we've been given for salvation in God and all that we need to know to love God has been given and displayed by Jesus. My fifth point is God's friends are called to service. Verse 16 You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that the Father may give you whatever you ask him in my name. This I command you, that you love one another. Notice we're not the ones that initiated this friendship, but rather God is the one that draws his friends. Jesus breaks classical rabbinic expectation that was common in the first century in first century Palestine, usually disciples would go and pick their rabbis. But this rabbi, Jesus, he goes and he picks his disciples. And he calls his disciples. There's a professor by the name of uh, Andreas Kossenberger that teaches at a seminary in Kansas City called Midwestern Seminary. He says this about this passage. Whereas servants or slaves are simply told what to do, friends are given more info which enables them to attain a fuller understanding of their obedience. The disciples' status as Jesus' friends is not an idle privilege, but it's one that carries a solemn responsibility, and it's granted in the context of being sent on a mission. Notice, Jesus says that he chose us and that he appointed us to go, to go bear fruit. Here it's appropriate to view friendship as mission. We share God's knowledge with our neighbors that have not known this great love. And we also remind the family of Christ that they have received this knowledge, that they possess the mind of Christ. This is why Paul is reminding believers of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, we read him say, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 and 18, we read, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, encourage and comfort one another with these words. Jude, in verse 3, says, Beloved, I was very eager to write to you concerning our common salvation, our shared salvation that we have as believers. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. The gospel transforms the way we do friendship. 1 John 3.17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Our friendship with God calls us to do something. It calls us to action. It calls us to love our brothers and sisters deeper, and it calls those that do not have a friendship with God. It calls us to love them and to share God's love with them. Community actually shapes our spiritual life and theological walk more than we realize. It's not noticed enough how much community, how the community one is in shapes a part of their theology. Friendship is a communal and a spiritual discipline. Our friendship with God bears fruit And it's a fruit that Jesus said would remain. Perhaps in seasons when we don't see fruit coming when we're working and we're obeying God 
and we're believing in him. Jesus is reminding us that the gospel bears fruit in our life even when we don't see it. And he gives us that promise. He gives us that tender confirmation in saying that we would bear fruit even when we're not completely seeing the results. And it would be a fruit that would remain. It would not be a fruit that would be stripped away from them. This I command you that you love one another. I want to give you some practical application for what we've observed in this passage. Invite people to dinner to build friendships. The more they're not like you, the better. I know we're attracted to people that are like us. But Luke chapter 14 verse 12 says, when you, when you host a banquet, don't, don't call people that can pay you back. And don't call people that are like you, but bring the people that can't pay you back and bring the people that aren't like you to the banquet. And you'll receive your reward. There's something communal that happens when you share a meal together. I'm very thankful for the people in this church that have called me over to dinner at their house. And it's something that I want to reach out to do more. I want to initiate dinner more with people in this church. Second point of application, friendships should cross generational and racial lines. When you look at the end of Paul's epistles, like Romans 16, when you read the types of people that are in the church, we read Jewish people and Gentile people getting along with each other. Jews and non-Jews. We read people that own property. We read rich, rich wealthy landowners are friends and members of the same community as, as slaves at the end of the, of, of the epistles. Just imagine how countercultural it was to be able to share a meal together and do communion together in the first century. Invest in those cross-generational friendships. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2 says, Exhort older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with all purity. There's a gift that we harvest when we have friendships with people that are in different stages of life that are able to help us and walk with us in every struggle we're going through. Third point, maybe this ties in with the first of not making friends that are like you, but make friends with non-church folk. I found when I went to a Christian college, a very small private Christian college for four years, I lost touch with all of my high school friends that were non-church people. And I found it surprisingly refreshing it was to become friends with people that weren't church people. It opened my eyes to new perspective, to be able to have conversation with them and begin to think in ways that I'd just been removed from for the last few years. Make friends with non-church folk. My fourth, fourth point is marriage is not the end all and be all. There's a pressure to find a romantic partner that's your best friend, but your spouse is not called to be your only friend. And perhaps this is a point about friendship for celibacy as well. Is that it's important to have friends with other singles and for married people to continue to have single friends and invite them over. It's been a gift to me when I've been struggling. 
My fifth point, practice the spiritual discipline of being in a community. Believe that friendships are a gift from God. And that's all I have to say. Let me close in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you have called us your friends and that you invite us into friendship with us. For those here that may not have the blessing and the privilege of being known as your friend, Lord, I ask that you would um, stir their heart and that they would be able to participate in that friendship and that blessed communion with you, that, that communion with, with the entire Trinity. Lord, I ask that, uh, that you would give them the confidence to be able to talk with somebody or pray with somebody after church if that's what you were stirring their heart to do. And thank you, Jesus, for the token of friendship that we're about to celebrate in communion. And that you have given us this covenant to remember our, our union and practice our communion with you. Teach us to invest in our friendships more intentionally and invest in our friendship with you so that we may continue to produce the fruit that you've called disciples to produce. I ask you all these things in the name of your son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.